Hello, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams to improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at LogRocket.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I am Paige Niedringhaus, a staff software engineer for Blues Wireless, and I am joined today by Alan Helton, an AWS serverless hero and ecosystem engineer at Memento, here to talk about synchronous apps. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hey, Paige. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you here as well. So let's dive right in. Can you talk a little bit about what synchronous apps are, what are the asynchronous and synchronous processes in application development and why we should know about it? Absolutely. Chances are, if you've been in software development for any length of time, you are already very familiar with what a synchronous process is, especially if you've developed things like REST APIs. A synchronous process is essentially a request response where you make a request for something and you wait until you get an answer. And usually when I talk to people about this concept and I want to explain it with a real world scenario, let's say you go into the library and you are looking for uh, fiction books by a specific author. So you would go up to the librarian and you say, I want everything that you have by JK Rowling. And you're going to stand there at the desk and wait until the librarian says, okay, yep, here's everything. It's over on that aisle. At which point you can then walk away and find all your Harry Potter books. Mm -hmm. Now, conversely, when we're talking about asynchronous processes, the easiest way to describe it is a fire and forget. It's something where you can say, all right, kick it off. Tell me when you're done. And that's something that is getting increasingly more important in the software industry pretty much every single day. It's something that is necessary because user expectations are changing mm -hmm. for software. And honestly, people just don't want to wait anymore. If you we went into the library and we tried to say an async thing for that, like the experience could change with a librarian and say, hey, can you text me when you find the location of the Harry Potter books? And then you go around, maybe go to the computer, do whatever you want. And then you get a text message that says, yes, they're in this aisle instead. And you walk over there and you continue on your way. So you don't have to stand at the desk and wait. You can do whatever you want. So is it just that user expectations are changing or is it also that the processes that we're doing are more complex and take longer as well? Of course, you know, your generic software answer here is it depends. And I would say really both of them stem from, yes, user expectations are changing because user expectations are expecting more and more to be done for them automatically, which means that your end-to-end -end workflows are getting longer and longer just in general. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need to do things asynchronously so you don't have people waiting, which really is the crux to a lot of this stuff. So is this the main reason that you're advocating that people move away from building synchronous applications? No, and thank you for asking that. <laughs> uh, it's a really big deal, right? User experience is at its core what will make your software live or die. If you have a terrible user experience, then people aren't gonna use it. We are flooded with options nowadays for software. You know, there's a hundred options to do any one specific thing. So if you go and you offer maybe a fully featured application that does everything under the sun in this particular domain, but the user experience is really bad, your users are going to leave, go to a different piece of software that maybe costs the same, maybe it costs a little bit more, but if the user experience is better, they're just going to abandon yours and move to somebody else's. It's very important, but also 
In addition to that, talking about software from a backend perspective instead of a front-end perspective, it's much better because it means you get to decouple your application, you get to scale things independently, and also run things in parallel. It doesn't always have to be synchronous. Gotcha. So we talked a little bit about how people expect more from their user experience, how expectations of just everything that is happening behind the scenes have changed. Can you elaborate a little bit on the significance of response times from a tenth of a second to 10 seconds in terms of the user experience? Yes. I actually wrote a blog post on everything that we're talking about today. And in part of the research of that blog post, I stumbled upon a Nielsen article from a year or two ago. And it was talking about the different tiers of responsiveness as far as user experience and human interactions go. And I thought it was just so fascinating because it said, if your application responds in less than 100 milliseconds, so that's 0.1 seconds, then the users that are actively in your user interface are going to think that their clicks and their interactions are directly making changes to your app. They think everything they're doing is actually making a difference. Beyond that, between 0.1 seconds and one second, then you get into this area where they know that what they're doing is actually doing something, but it doesn't feel interactive. Mm -hmm. uh, this is when you would expect to see somebody click on a button and maybe they start moving their mouse in a little circle. A lot of people do that and they don't realize that's what they're doing. But if you ever see somebody do that, that's usually meaning that the response is taking between 0.1 seconds and one second. One second is also a really good demarcation point because that is going to be about as long as the short-term attention span will go before you have to actually start making a conscious effort to get back into the flow. So you can take up to a second and rejoin your flow without any like intentional effort. After that, that's where you get into a trouble zone where between a second and 10 seconds, people start wandering a little bit. Their mind starts wandering. This is where you start seeing people start clicking on buttons again because they think maybe it's not working. Mm -hmm. And it's also the closer you get to 10 seconds and 10 seconds is actually a big deal. And I'll get to that in a second. Now, the closer you get to 10 seconds, the higher likelihood it is that their attention span is just going to break. Yeah. So this would be, I like to describe a scenario where if you have somebody over your shoulder, like maybe you're teaching somebody something and you're walking through the business process and you click on save and it takes four, five, six seconds. The closer you get to 10 seconds, the much, much higher likelihood of that user looking over at the person behind their back and asking, what'd you do this weekend? <laughs> and starting up a completely unrelated topic because that short-term attention span is broken and actually having to make a conscious effort when that page refreshes or navigates you somewhere else. Past 10 seconds, people just aren't going to use it unless you're like trapped, unless it's like something that your company mandates you to use or whatever. After anything longer than 10 seconds, people are just going to start navigating away and say, maybe it'll work another time. It reminds me a little bit of software development especially when we had build processes like Gulp and Grunt and all those other ones for helping build JavaScript applications, they would take several seconds to reload changes that you'd made on your local machine into the browser, or you'd have to refresh the page. And it was absolutely maddening, 
especially knowing now we have hot module reloading with Svelte and Next.js and things like that, where you make the change and immediately it's reflected in the browser. I can absolutely identify with how quickly that attention span starts to wander and you open up Twitter or you're on Reddit suddenly and you've completely forgotten what you're working on before. Absolutely. Yeah. Without hot reloading, I cannot. It will take me a full day to write a web page compared to an hour because I will be trolling Twitter or uh, LinkedIn every time I wait for it to rebuild. (laughs) Just can't do it. Me too. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about how a user's attention can be broken in such a short span of time, actually. Could you walk us through some of the challenges that you faced with synchronous transcriptions and kind of an example of what that might look like. So the transcription thing is not actually something that I've built before. It's a common example that I use because everybody knows nowadays what transcriptions are. And for anyone that doesn't, it's just taking an audio file and you know returning text, say these are the words that were contained in that audio file. And I like this example because that's not generally a very fast operation. The example that I like is you have an API that does transcriptions and it takes 30 seconds to return you the text from whatever. And 30 seconds is a lot longer than that 10 second attention span max point. Mm-hmm. And if you try to make your users wait, they're not going to stay. There's no chance that somebody is going to stay three times longer than what they generally will be able to tolerate. But best case scenario, the person's going to switch tabs, do something else, and come back afterwards. Probably not going to be in 30 seconds. It's probably going to be in five minutes or whenever they remember, oh, shoot, I had this running. So it's hard to say a synchronous experience like that is good because you are going to lose the majority of your audience as that process is running. It needs to happen because that's the core of your application. But you're not going to really be able to keep people there. As a synchronous app, that experience is bad. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is you can change that to asynchronous and actually be able to retain your users, get people to be significantly more productive because there are tricks that you can do to keep people's attention span. Let's talk about those tricks. I can summarize everything in one word, and that's interactivity. Basically, all you're doing is giving feedback to your users that says something is happening. And I want to actually sidestep the transcription example with another example that people all know, and that's messaging. Messaging at its core is like the original async process, you know, even down to mailing a letter way back when. Mm -hmm. It's async. Like when you originally sent a letter to somebody, you would put it in the mailbox. And you just had no idea. You had no idea when it was delivered or if it was delivered, really ever. You know, if it was an invitation to a party or something, you would know that person got it because they showed up to your party. But if it was just an informative letter, you just had no idea. We've improved messaging over the years from when the postal service was originally created. And now we have things like immediate delivery of messages. Let's do a text message. Now, I am one of those people that have an Android phone. I don't have an iPhone, so I can't really use iMessage as an example of interactivity because I just don't have the experience with it. But WhatsApp is a really popular messaging platform that I don't think Americans use it very often. I don't really use it, but I think the rest of the world uses it. The rest of the world does, yeah. Pretty extensively, yeah. So I like to use this as an example. Still 
at its core, it's a messaging service and it's still asynchronous. But if you're having a conversation with somebody, WhatsApp does a really good job at keeping your attention span because it has all these interactivity points. Uh, so let's like dive in. Like you send a message, you immediately get a check mark in the app next to your message. And that means that your message was sent, which means it left your phone and it hit the WhatsApp servers. Then sometime later, maybe it's a few milliseconds later, maybe it's a few hundred milliseconds later, you get another check mark next to your message that stands for message delivered. So your person that you're messaging has been notified that they have a new message. Beyond that, the next step in this interactive process is a status indicator. In your message window, uh, let's say you and I were sending messages page, I would have your avatar at the top and it has status indicators. So I could see that you weren't online, but you received my message and now you are, your status changes to online. It's an interactivity point. Mm -hmm. So I see that and I'm gonna hang on because, oh, now you're here. After that, you go into our message and you actually read it. Now WhatsApp, what it does is when a message is unread, it has gray check marks. The sent and the delivered check marks are gray. But when you read the message, it changes to blue. The next thing in my little process here is now I see that you read my message. I see that my check marks are blue. And you know, that could have taken five seconds, but once I see that the message is blue, mm -hmm. I've kind of reset mentally on this 10 second timer. Every time an interaction point hits me, my mental timer or my attention span resets because I can tell that something's happening and my progress is continuing. Yeah. So the message turns blue and you're reading the message. Maybe it takes you four or five seconds to read it and figure out what to say. You start typing a message back. Your status indicator changes to typing. It literally says typing. I think iPhone maybe has dots. Android definitely has dots when somebody's typing. But that's another interactivity point. I can see that you're actively messaging me. I don't know what your message is, but I can see that something's happening and I can see that the progress is being made on this async process. So I'm probably still going to hang around because chances are I'm about to get a message back. So I see that my mental timer is reset. Maybe you type for four or five seconds and then you stop to reread your message. Your typing indicator goes away. So I think, okay, I'm about to get a message. Interactivity point, the typing status has changed. Maybe you type again. And it's like, oh, okay, well, let me reset my mental timer here because something's about to happen. And then ultimately you send your message, gets delivered to me and I can see it showing up in my app. So chances are that entire process end to end for me hitting send to getting a message back from you, that could have taken 30 seconds. It could have taken 40 seconds because I had all these interaction points or this interactivity along the way, my mental attention span timer got reset over and over and over again which made me feel like I was only waiting four or five seconds. Yeah. When in actuality, it could have taken 30 or 40. Which I guess is very different from the old way that we used to send email, where you would select somebody, you would type your message, you would send it, and then you would have no idea if they had received it, if they'd seen it, if they were going to respond to it. So you just close the email application and go about your day. Absolutely. People impress me and inspire me so much because we got from, let's just say at the beginning of the US Postal Service, which was like 1775, you know, that took potentially weeks to deliver a message. Mm -hmm. And it would be weeks to hear a response back with a letter back. We improved that process to instantaneous delivery. 
we literally can't get any faster because the laws of physics say data cannot transmit over a wire any faster than this. It's as fast as it can get. And we still continue to innovating and making that better because async processes are black boxes. I don't have any idea what's happening. So we added these points of interactivity and metadata around statuses, around the process, just status updates in general, what's happening. And that's what improves the experience when you literally can't get any faster. It's just such a cool mentality and a cool way that people have evolved to expect different user experiences. It's really genius. It's something that I never thought about, but you're absolutely right. Getting that little feedback, even if it's just that your message has been sent or that somebody has seen it, is satisfying and will definitely make me stay longer just to see what happens next. Yeah. It comes down to chemical reactions inside of the body. It's all dopamine related. You know, you see something and you get a little spike of dopamine, which is a satisfaction chemical in your brain. And it's like, oh, I, I love that. I love that feeling. <laughs> I want to keep getting more of that. So I'm going to wait for more status updates and continue getting these hits of dopamine. And that's really how you're going to, you know, apply that across the board when you're building asynchronous processes, moving from synchronous to async is how can I deliver dopamine to my end users uh, as often as possible to reset their mental timers. So besides the interactivity to keep people's attention longer, are there other components that are essential for building good asynchronous workflows? It's hard for me to say good because good is a subjective term. And it really depends on the scale and fault tolerance of your application. Like, again, I answered your question with it depends again, because software, <laughs> there are no true answers to almost anything. But definitely things that you can do are run processes in parallel. If you're trying to interact with something in multiple different ways, you know, you can split that work out and run them at the same time to mm -hmm. make things faster as compared to a waterfall. Yeah. Yes. That's much better. I wanted to use synchronous in the you know time definition of the word, but not in the software definition, but yeah, in a waterfall version, you have this, then this, as opposed to something that's more event driven where you can fan out, process the work in parallel and then get to the end result faster. But again, it depends on what your business requirements are with set processes. Mm -hmm. Are there any potential drawbacks to going to asynchronous processes? Oh, so many. <laughs> I will absolutely not sit here and say that it is the best. It's actually very hard to learn because sometimes you have to make things up to be successful with it. Like if we're talking about interactivity points, right? With the WhatsApp example, the fact that you can see a person's status, they were last online at this time, or they're online right now, or they're typing, that really doesn't have anything to do with that message itself. Right. You're having to come up with clever statuses that are tangentially related that can string people along. So you have to get really creative with that. In addition to that, talking about it from like a backend engineering perspective and the actual like work perspective, because you've decoupled the front end with the back end and the work with the statuses, you've introduced many more opportunities for failure. Every time you hop to something else, you could have a transient network error. You can have a data ingest error. Maybe the data is not in the right format. From a synchronous perspective, you've taken the points of failure from one to n with n being the number of things that you're doing in this process so you have to figure out how do i handle errors how do i classify the different errors as recoverable 
unrecoverable. Really, it's just those two. But then figure out like if it's unrecoverable, what do I do? Do I expect that the person's still, you know, on the other side? Do I expect them to fire this process off and then walk away? Maybe this process takes normally 30 minutes instead of 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. If it takes 30 minutes and I fail 15 minutes in, I am definitely not expecting somebody to still be on the other side. So I'm going to send them an email instead of sending them an in-app notification so I can actually reach that person. There's just a whole lot more thinking that you have to do with async around contingency planning and all these other things because you've introduced many more points of failure and you've also given your end users an opportunity to just not be there when the result is done. Do you have any concrete tips for mitigating those risks? (laughs) Practice. (laughs) Uh, and, And that is my legitimate answer. Earlier in my career, I was given the opportunity to lead some R&D development teams into the cloud. We were historically an on-prem SQL-based .NET shop, and I was given the task to go figure out the cloud. That was like literally my task. That was what they told me. And so I got to pick my team of engineers and we went and just ran sprint after sprint of things like cloud concepts, like modern app development, everything that we weren't doing at the time. What is multi-tenancy? What are events? What is the best type of programming language to do things efficiently in a serverless environment? What is NoSQL? How do you structure data there? How do you join data? Oh, you can't. Okay, how do I store data then? All of these different types of things. And we'd got everything wrong at least once. And it wasn't until we started practicing, seeing our mistakes, and then applying the changes that we started really understanding how to handle these things a little bit better, how you can decouple, how you can process events, how you can recover from failed event delivery to failed event processing. Like Even knowing that those are two different things is something that you can read about all day long. But in practice, it is a very, very different experience. I hate subscribing people to theory when it's a brand new concept. So just go try. Here are some tutorials to go try and figure out what to do in these different scenarios. Yeah, that's good advice. For me, it doesn't really stick until I have broken something and have to figure out how to fix it. Oh, yeah. Oh, (laughs) the very first time I ever tried to debug a choreographed workflow and choreographed compared to Orchestrated just means it's very decoupled. Publishers of events don't know who the subscribers are. It's all very, this happened and then this reacts. You can't really, at least at the time when we were first doing it, look at what that end-to-end process looks like. You you just have to have an idea of who the publishers are and who the subscribers are if you maintain the system as a whole. The very first time I ran into a problem with that, it was like a warrant that disappeared. A warrant for somebody's arrest just completely disappeared. And I had no idea how to troubleshoot it. And I was the manager of the whole project. I was the manager and architect of the project. And I was like, did we make a mistake? Should we not have done this? No idea how to troubleshoot any of this. And we eventually figured it out, but it was extremely stressful. I was sweating bullets because it's like, this is somebody's life on the line that just gone. And it was very scary. I can believe it. So let's talk a little bit about event-driven architectures, which you touched on briefly. Can you talk about how they've evolved over time and the relevance today in modern web development? 
Yeah, so this really goes back to the words I've been saying over and over the past 30 minutes or so is decoupling your components. So generally with the type of architecture we're talking about, have things that are single responsibility. So you have maybe a web service that does this part of the domain or this one thing for the transcription thing, let's say that is like storing assets. All it does is a web service that does the media storage and maybe file storage for text files. You have just that. But then you also have a different service that its sole responsibility is like upscaling the quality of the audio files that have come in. And Netflix has a huge service that does that for video and audio. All it does is upscaling. And then you have another service that actually does the transcriptions. And each one of these things can have various amounts of load at any given time. And you want them to be able to say, I want to scale this to handle 10,000 requests a second. And this one really is pretty slow. It's also an expensive procedure. It only really can handle about 500 requests a second. So being able to have different amounts of scale is super important, especially when everybody uses the internet all the time nowadays. Mm -hmm. and you just have these vast amount of internet scale that come into your applications. So decoupling is really important when you're building applications nowadays. And in order to get things from one service to another, generally what you're going to be doing is firing events and saying, hey, I have this request come in and somebody needs to take care of it. Or these n number of things need to take care of it as a result. You fire an event and then there's generally an event broker or event bus that knows who that needs to go to, who the subscribers are, and they can pick it up and just carry on their merry way. And so how that's evolved over time to where we are now, so we just have a lot more metadata around it. The delivery of messages of events has gotten a lot faster. It's like in the mail example we were talking about earlier. The one thing that's always going to be there is how fast things get from one to the other. We're constantly improving the speed of that. And in the internet age that we're in right now, we're talking about delivery times in tens of milliseconds. Sometimes for the aggressive guys, we're talking about nanoseconds or uh, microseconds, very fast delivery, not instant because physics, but we're talking about the speed of delivery. But in addition to that, there's other things like metadata and information that can get stamped onto events that help you troubleshoot, that help you figure out context, that help you figure out where this is coming from. Never where it's going. That's not generally part of an event-driven architecture, but where it's coming from and what it's doing is what you're going to do. So think AWS does a really good job with their event bridge service for event messaging. So they have a whole bunch of data that's automatically stamped onto events when you publish something, like the time and the sender and, and all that fun stuff. So uh, it's evolving really fast because it's a necessity in the internet age. So how do serverless services factor into this? How do they make the transition to asynchronous and event-driven architectures easier, harder? How do they figure into it? Again, I try to avoid easier and harder because they're subjective terms. And I always like to say, don't confuse unfamiliarity with complexity. It usually just takes a little bit of time to understand how things work. But what I really like about serverless as a concept in general, or a set of capabilities, is that it takes away the part that you don't really need to care about when you're building software, which is infrastructure. Uh, it, mm -hmm. Serverless services will scale out horizontally to be able to handle any amounts of throughput pretty much immediately. 
and handles the networking for you, handles all this lower level stuff that doesn't technically provide business value, leaving developers to focus just on business value. And a lot of my experience comes with AWS. So uh, what this really does and how serverless services play in this event-driven asynchronous workflow paradigm is that you can think of these different services as microservices or these things that can scale differently from each other. Amazon has a compute service called Lambda, which is what everybody thinks is serverless, uh, but it's their serverless compute service. And that's the thing that actually runs your code and does transformations, does whatever it needs to do. And you have the serverless databases like Aurora and DynamoDB. And those are two completely different services. And you can send events off into this ecosystem and decouple your code and have it go down at various amounts of throughput from service to service. So I really like it as far as this structure goes, because A, I don't have to worry about infrastructure at all. Mm-hmm. Don't like it. When I say infrastructure, I mean like actual physical servers and all the things that you have to do that you don't care about like operating systems and security patches and and all that fun stuff. I lived that life for a long time and I'm really (laughs) glad I never have to do it again. The other thing is that they scale and and they do all that. You don't have to really think about that besides we won't get into that, but they also are decoupled, right? They use events to communicate with each other to allow various points of scale, the parts of the process. So that's kind of my short and long answer for how this all plays together. So going back a little bit to talking about real-time communication and its role, can you talk about how mechanisms like WebSockets and server-sent events are improving user experience? Yeah. Along the way, you have to push information and services down to the end user if you're going to provide those points of interactivity. Really, like with WhatsApp, with all of the stuff that was happening in that example that we had with WhatsApp, those really were all server-side actions. And we wanted to make a meaningful correlation to a business process or a business event to the customer, right? This was sent, right? So it's basically sending an act from the server back to the client. So it uses mechanisms that can communicate from the server down to the client to say this business event happened, update the screen so we can reset those timers, those short attention span timers. And there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms nowadays that make it easy to get this information from the server down to the client. WebSockets are usually the one that people think of when they think of server to client, by client, browser, cell phone, whatever your end users are actually using uh, that make these communications easier. Server sent events is one, it's like a read-only option where it's only from the server down to the client. WebSockets are two-way, so you can send a message over to the server from the client and vice versa. There's a whole bunch of other ones too. You can establish like gRPC connections that have these persistent connections between the client and the server and, and all that. But really the point nowadays, it's super easy. There's a lot of abstractions in play. Uh, a lot of companies that have options and managed choices for you to actually just go and build these things with one API call. You can just say publish and everybody in your front end can get a message. One point in my career builds a notification service, microservice. Oh, that's tough. 
Oh yeah. It managed WebSocket connections is, is what it did. And it was like 700 lines of infrastructure as code plus about a thousand lines of code that actually went in and, and managed it when really at the end of the day, what it was providing was a way for me to say, hey, go refresh your page. It, it was so much when nowadays it's like literally two lines. There's one line in your browser and one line on your server that says publish or subscribe. So it's really never been an easier time to be able to push these types of things to your end users, which is why I'm going around talking right now on moving from synchronous to async, because this is the time to do it. So talking a little bit about the end user and how it's never been easier to get them information and instant notifications, how do you ensure that those applications meet the demands of those users? Is there any advice or hard-won experience that you can share about that? I don't have a whole lot of experience with that piece of it because fortunately for me, my end users were captive audiences, meaning their bosses and their bosses were the ones that purchased the software for all of them to use. And if they didn't like it, they still had to use it. Not everybody has that privilege. For those that don't have that privilege, you can absolutely track things like customer journeys, like where along the process are people abandoning your application, like a, a good, easy, relatable example is like the shopping cart, right? You have an e-commerce site and you can figure out what's the cart abandonment rate. How many people are leaving things in their cart and not making a purchase? Where along the way are people getting lost? More often than not, you can actually go in and take measures to improve that. Mm -hmm. the, the shopping cart is an interesting example because that's like a very async thing where if they get to the cart, they're about to check out and they don't, maybe we should just send them a coupon in a day and see if it was the price mm -hmm. versus something where they're on an item page, on an inventory page, and that's usually where we leave them. Maybe we can add some sort of interactive piece where it's showing the amount left in inventory to maybe increase their sense of urgency to see that the inventory is going down. There's a whole bunch of different strategies and people science that go into making a better, more engaging funnel, for lack of a better word. So where do you foresee the trends in application development going? We're going towards asynchronous and we're going towards event-driven. So what's next, do you think? I genuinely think that we're moving to a place as far as software development goes and building goes. I think we're moving to a place where abstractions and managed services are going to get higher and higher and you're going to be able to just drop components into a web page that do a lot of this for you. Or you can maybe drop in a widget, an async widget that knows how to communicate with any number of these services and figure out what to do with status updates that just expedites your time to delivery. That seems to be, at least in the serverless space where I hang out a lot, one of the main focuses in a lot of the startups that I'm seeing in the area I actually heard the phrase productized patterns the other day, which I thought was a really cool thing. The front end world would recognize them as high order components. Mm -hmm. It's something that I can drop in that does X, Y, and Z in a best practice way. And if the package that I'm importing that from decides that there's a better way to do it, all I have to do is update the package and get the new best practice way. And we're starting to see that both in the front end and the back end nowadays. So I think that's just gonna continue to get more and more popular so we can get things out the door faster and faster with 
more or less a, like a converged set of best practices. That sounds like a perfect future to me. <laughs> me too. So are there any final thoughts that you have or recommendations that you would share for developers who are in this transition or who want to start making this transition? Keep trying. You will fail. I failed so many times. And every single time I learned an incredibly valuable lesson. I couldn't tell you what they are now, but it deepened my understanding of the concepts in general and how to make a better experience for the end user. A lot of backend engineers don't think about what that customer experience is going to be. They think about what's the best way to technically solve a problem. And seeing things, sitting with a customer of your application really changes your perspective on how you build. So <laughs> build something, go sit with somebody using your stuff, and then figure out, okay, this is the direct impact of me doing things that way. This is the direct impact of this failure. And this is the course of action I'm going to take to address that and basically just move down the line and, and keep your experience going. Well, Alan, it has been a pleasure having you on today. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more, what's the best way to find you online? I'm very active on Twitter and on LinkedIn at Alan Helton Dev. Same thing. That's also my email if you want to get a hold of me via email. I also have a website, readysetcloud.io. That is where I put my blogs. I have a weekly newsletter. And I also have a podcast as well. Everything is just umbrellaed under Ready, Set, Cloud. So it's all there. Fantastic. Again, thank you for joining us on Pod Rocket. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a, a great time and really enjoyed the conversation. 